Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have you or someone you know struggled with alcohol use? A recent study by the National Institutes of Health and Research Triangle International has found a staggering increase in alcohol consumption by women in the first wave of the pandemic. Women with young children have seen a 323% increase in drinking. Yet average alcohol consumption has been climbing long before the pandemic. Today where we live, we'll hear the stories of three Connecticut women in recovery. And later, we'll talk to a Yale physician specializing in addiction medicine. We also want to hear from you. Are you or a loved one in recovery for excessive alcohol use? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom today is Kathleen Callahan. She's a Stratford, Connecticut resident. Kathleen, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. Now, I understand you've been sober for 10 years. So can you tell us a little bit about your story? When did you first begin to use alcohol? Oh, um, yes. And it's coming up on 10 years. Uh, well, I was raised in Stanford and I was one of six children, uh, the first of three girls after three boys. And um, before I get to when I started, my story's intertwined with so many others. I won't go deep into that other than to say that over the years, uh, with hard work and forgiveness, my loved ones and I have processed uh, together and moved forward. But I will share that I was both incredibly fortunate and significantly damaged. I experienced trauma early on in my life and again in early adulthood. And I carried uh, those secrets for decades due to both suppression and then guilt and shame. So um, with that said, my my exposure to drinking happened sometime around seven or eight years old. Um, we grew up in a, a neighborhood filled with children. It was the 70s and there was a lot of um, wild behavior going on. So uh, I would say seven or eight was my first drink. Wow. I'm sorry to hear that you had those experiences uh, growing up. And so when we think about uh, access to alcohol, looking back, uh, did you see that your use was tied to helping you cope with what was happening to you? Uh, I, I honestly don't think I can say that. I, mm -hmm. I, I know that I um, behaved the way I did throughout my life and began drinking because of who I was, where I lived, the family I was in. Um, I don't know if at that age I was trying to cope later on for sure um, as things were revealed to me as my memory started to come back. But my father owned a liquor store. My parents were wonderful. Um, they prov provided a safe, uh, caring, nurturing um, home for us. Again, the tumult of the 70s and the um, experimentation with alcohol and drugs throughout our neighborhood, throughout our community was rampant at the time. Um, I can go to meetings now and see many people I grew up with. So um, I just think that it was available. And uh, as kids in the neighborhood found it, it didn't matter if you were younger, you were exposed to it as well. 
So as you approached adulthood, uh, what happened and when did you understand that you had a problem? Um, well, I think back now and I think it's really wild for me to think that I haven't had an alcohol drink in almost a decade. Um, and it's stranger to believe that I uh, 40 years passed between my first and last drink. That's where I am now. That seems hard to believe. Um, it was 35 years really of drinking and 25 of them were hard drinking and my last 10 years were daily drinking and um i ran from it and it, it, the admission of it 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 did impact my family um my older brothers and i didn't want to um be like that i was raised strong-willed and uh fearless and um i could take care of everything and i think part of what happened to me younger uh enforced that that i i had to take care of myself um so i think that I, I ran from it for a very long time. I remember going to a meeting early on and um, to celebrate someone's five-year anniversary. And I knew then, and that was in my 20s, um, I had a disastrous early marriage, and which was verbally abusive. And I, I, uh, I knew then, I knew I was escaping my drinking by marrying him. He did not drink. So I knew, but I just, I couldn't get a handle on it at all. And I had, uh, you know, multiple diagnoses through therapy and multiple admissions for treatment and multiple relapses. So it was a, a very long path for me, but the, the last 10 years and, and surely the last two and a half years of my drinking was when I, I knew I finally admitted. And that was in my mid forties. So what was the turning point, Kathleen? The, uh, the turning point was uh, two and a half years before I stopped drinking, I was rushed to the hospital with acute pancreatitis and alcoholic hepatitis. And the doctors at Yale emergency room told me that I would have six years to live. I'm sorry, six months to live if I continued drinking the way I was. Um, uh, shockingly, I drank for another two and a half years and I'm here today with all of you. Um, the turning point after many different admissions to treatment and tries at uh, 12 step programming was um, my last admission, the day before my last admission to, to treatment, I was outside of Minneapolis um, in the plains west of Minneapolis. And I was a little early for my intake early in the morning. And I was sitting in a parking lot nearby the treatment center at a train station. And I, um, I was still drinking and I thought about walking onto those train tracks. And at that moment, um, I realized that I wasn't afraid to die. And that really scared me that I wasn't afraid to die. And I, I then realized that, you know, all, all the people who had been supporting me, all the loved ones who I had taken hostage over the last decade, um, they believed in me. And, and maybe with all the seeds that had been planted over the years, that maybe, maybe recovery was for me as well. Well, Kathleen, we're glad to be talking with you today and, and hearing your story because we know that everyone um, has a different story and, and treatment options can vary. So what worked for you? Well, what worked for me was to honestly was to be um, completely away from alcohol for a while. I had to be I had to be put away. Um, I had to be isolated from alcohol. And what helped me was um, gender specific programming. Um, my my trauma, um, all of it throughout the life was gender based. And um, while my responses may not have been, they were by my personality and who I am. Um, my treatment had to be gender based. And even to this day, um, the women that I, I walk um, in recovery and outside of recovery are, are tremendous supports and we, we lift each other up all the time. So I, I definitely needed to 
digging. I don't know if everybody needs to tell their stories of their childhood. I, I did. Um, and I needed to understand the value of connection because I was, I was trying to do life on its own with my own, me being my own God, my own um, director of my life. So, so working with other women and being removed from the opportunity for alcohol. Um, so my last day was, um, I knew when I went in that it would be the last because I had been away enough time. So, you know, due to blessings beyond my control and my complete acceptance of addiction and support of women, um, Grace alighted on December 21st, 2011. And um, I say Grace because I was afforded the hope and courage to try again. And I finally found some faith that I could face the future and find joy and meaning. You're hearing Kathleen Callahan here on Where We Live. Uh, she lives in Connecticut. Uh, she's going on 10 years sober as we talk with women in recovery from excessive alcohol use. So we're talking about this today because researchers say that this problem has skyrocketed during the pandemic, especially among women in the first wave, but it was growing even before this public health crisis. I wanted to bring in another perspective on Zoom with us is Beverly Brakeman. She's a West Hartford resident. Beverly, welcome to our show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you. It's really powerful uh, to hear Kathleen share her story with us. And mm -hmm. I wanted to, to learn about you as well. Tell us about how long you've been sober. Um, okay. Well, thank you, Kathleen, for sharing your story. I really appreciate that. And thanks for doing the show. Um, so I have been sober for 31 years. I started drinking when I was 16. Um, uh, it's a long story, <laughs> but basically, you know, not unlike Kathleen, it was sort of growing up, I was awkward, uncomfortable, embarrassed by my appearance, voice, thoughts, ideas, everything. And, you know, after discovering alcohol around um, in my teens, um, it was kind of a game changer. You know, all of a sudden I was pretty, I was desirable, I was smart, you know, all those things. So, um, but it got worse, got a lot worse. And so tell us about the turning point for you when you realized that um, you had a problem and, and you needed some treatment. Um, you know, I think it was, you know, many years of drinking and my disease really started to progress to the point where I was a blackout drinker. So I was doing a lot of things um, drunk and not remembering them. I was really kind of, it was pretty dangerous. I would blackout for long periods of time and, um, you know, hurt myself a lot. And um, even though people were concerned about me, um, I was pretty good at dodging their concerns and I was quite functional. Um, so after, I don't know, about 10 years of drinking like that, um, I was also st struggling with depression and anxiety and I sort of have a mo had a moment um, that I just realized I was never gonna have the life I wanted if I kept drinking. Mm. And so I mentioned to Kathleen that treatment can look very different depending on the individual. So can you talk about uh, the, the treatment uh, that helped you, the, the programs that helped you? Yeah, so I mean, so a lot of people in the program don't have like a moment where they, um, you know, in, in a lot of alcoholic women don't necessarily have a moment. For me, I did. Um, it was sort of sitting in a bar by myself. I just had this experience of complete dread that I was never going to, I just was never gonna, if I kept drinking, my life was gonna end or I was gonna end it myself. So for me, what worked is because I was concurrently being treated 
with a therapist for really severe depression. Um, it was taught a lot of talk therapy. I'm a very high maintenance alcoholic. <laughs> and, um, and at that time, um, Prozac had just come out. And even though I'll be the first to tell you, I think we over medicate with psych meds. It was a life changer for me. And then, you know, I got involved in this 12, 12 step program of recovery. And, you know, I'm happy to tell you a little bit about the stages of that. Um, if you'd like. Yes, please, Beverly. So, um, so sort of 12 steps. Um, the first steps really are about grasping the hard reality for me that I just couldn't drink anymore. Um, and then my life was absolutely a complete mess and I had no power over alcohol at all. Um, and I had to admit I had a problem. And then even harder was sort of building a spiritual foundation um, so that I felt like I had something bigger than me to rely on. And I didn't always believe in a God or higher power, I think, um, but I do today. Um, the next set of steps are really about looking inward at yourself and looking at your resentments, your bad behavior, your hurtful actions towards other, your defenses of character. And this is really important because I believe it's, it's hard not to go back to drinking if you don't offload your resentments um, and really look in at yourself at the way you've hurt other people and in turn yourself. So it's really about self-forgiveness. And then sort of the next next part is cleaning up your side of the street. Like, okay, so let's get honest with yourself. How many people did I hurt? A lot. How many things did I hurt? How many, you know, animals did I run over? That was one of my stories that was really awful. Um, and then, you know, making amends to those people and making your life right. And it's as much for them as it is for you. Because um, sometimes they're like, yeah, whatever. I don't even remember that. But it's really about about living your life in a more gracious, honest, um, and and with integrity. Um, and then the last step is sort of like what we're doing here today, which is talking about letting other women know that there are lots of us out here who will hear your story. We won't be surprised by your story. We will protect your anonymity. We will protect your story. Um, and we will do everything we can to help you because this is a fellowship of, um, um, you know, based on love, and support and recovery. And alcoholism is a disease that does look different on women and it impacts us in different ways. And so I'm really glad you're doing this story. But the last thing I'll say is 31 years is a lot of sobriety, but to be honest, what far more inspires me is the, the woman with three days, three weeks, 60 days, 90 days, you know, that's what inspires me and keeps me sober. I'm glad you brought that up, Beverly, because when we think about recovery, is this a lifelong journey? In, for me, absolutely. Like <laughs> these, the the twelve steps that I just sort of went through, you know, you can apply them to so many parts of your life. Because I'm an addict, you know, so I don't drink alcohol anymore. But trust me when I tell you, I can, I can, I can go over the top on exercise, food, relationships, um, you know, you name it. Um, it's I'm I'm sort of hardwired in that way. So these steps really, really work for me. Um, and you revisit them. For me, I revisit them all the time. And I stay active with other women alcoholics who, who I love um, and who I know have my back. And I have a lot of men alcoholics in my life that, I, that have helped me stay sober over the years. Um, so if anybody's listening to this, you are not alone. Uh, Kathleen Callahan, I wanted to go back to you uh, to ask you again, 
when we think about your story and the importance of sharing it. Do you, do you think it helps uh, confront that stigma that other people struggling with alcohol use uh, um, encounter um, from people they know? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you, Beverly, for all your all your words and speaking out. I agree that um, this work is lifetime. Uh, and that's part of the uh, stigma, confronting the stigma, is that um, I knew that my disease was not purely about alcohol. It was about more things. I never had enough. And um, I think that hearing different stories and di different pathways that people enter addiction live in addiction and move out of addiction. It's very unique and individualized. So I think it's really important for all of us to, to share our stories. I'm, I'm very active with other women. And I um, actually had the opportunity to learn how to train in a healing trauma uh, curriculum. And, and it's it, similar to working with other women in a 12 step situation to see people grow and, and recognize why they did what they did and to remove that shame. Because I think Stigma is what society is doing, keeping us back, but our own internal shame, which I think is such a uh, such a wasted emotion, um, is what keeps us from, it's our secrets, and it's uh, that we think we're, we're worse. So any of us that can talk, um, get this stuff out uh, into the sunlight and, and, you know, kill the bad and let the good grow. Kathleen, I also think that there's mixed messages in our society, right, where uh, people uh, may judge others who are dealing with addiction, but when it comes uh, to drinking, it's socially acceptable. People sometimes don't see it as a big deal. And so how do we confront that, those mixed messages that we send? Well, I think, you know, for a long time, I, I've changed careers in the, in the um, path of my recovery. Um, I was a social, uh, software engineer for over two decades. And when I came into recovery, I I eventually went back and got my associates in drug and alcohol counseling and then my master's in social work um, so that I could do some of this work. And I think I think uh, initially treatment obviously is important for the people that are, are already diagnosed and, and have issues that require that level of care. But it's my work now focuses on the, the young people, um, young girls specifically, but of course, boys, anybody that thinks that it is okay. You know, we have found that um, if you can hold off initiation, the first drink from the age 14 to 21 every year that you hold off reduces the chance of a problem. Um, our brains are still developing. So if we can do that in a preventative way and with early interventions, we'll have less people um, that have this life-threatening disease. Um, but I think in, in schools, families, friends, we have to talk about it. Um, I know that in, in my household growing up that my parents didn't drink, even though my dad had the liquor store, he didn't drink much, uh, but it was around us and it was socially acceptable. And I don't know if PSAs work so much as younger people going into the schools and talking about it. Um, I am trained in uh, screening, grief intervention and referral to treatment for adolescents. And that is a harm reduction, um, very kind way to just plant seeds and, and um, highlight the good that is possible in your life if, if you're not um, drinking as much. And I have to say, the binge drinking in college, as big of a problem as it is, and, and, and the drinking and drugging that kids experience in, a younger, in younger years isn't as widespread as many think. And to share that and normalize that it's okay to not drink. And it's okay that if you want to get good grades and continue your sports um, and your, your extracurricular uh, activities, that's okay. And to reinforce the positives while um, it's okay if you're if you're drinking. Make sure you have a drive driver. Make sure that you have someone to support you. You know to slowly plant seeds. 
Well, it's been wonderful to hear from you and Beverly and the openness that you've shared with our listeners about your recovery. Kathleen Callahan and Beverly Brakeman, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up, we continue our conversations with women in recovery. And later, we hear from a doctor specializing in addiction medicine. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, 888-720-WMPR, or share a comment on our Facebook page, or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about a problem that's growing among women, and that's excessive alcohol use. A recent National Institutes of Health study found in the first wave of the pandemic, alcohol consumption grew among black people, people with children, and those with mental health problems. And the largest increases were seen among women with children younger than five. We want to continue to talk to women in recovery, and joining us now on Zoom is Amanda Aronson, owner of Aronson Consulting in West Hartford. She's also a school board member in the town. Amanda, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me and for highlighting this really important topic. Now, I know that uh, you've been sober for more than seven years, and now you're working with women uh, through your consulting firm to also help them overcome uh, their alcohol consumption uh, issues. So talk about um, how you've been doing that and how you met your own recovery. Well, thank you. I, I do work with women as part of my work. Uh, some of the work I do involves people who want to manage sober living, but I work with women who really want to take their personal and professional development seriously. And we do that through some strategic planning. So it's not just about their recovery, but it might be about uh, managing some of the other aspects of their lives. Because for, in my experience, that is really part of this process of recovery. Uh, my recovery story, I, I think, started when I, I started drinking in high school uh, socially, but my recovery story really started when I was a senior in college, and I had I paid my way through school, so I was working full-time, I was a full-time student, and I 
really had it in my mind that I didn't want to miss anything. So I was going to work hard, play hard. <laughs> and throughout that time, I started to buckle under the stress. I picked up some really bad habits. Um, I would isolate at the end of the night and relax as a reward for myself at the end of the day. And I would listen to music and write and and drink. And I got closer and closer to drug use um, over the years that I was in school. I had to stop my education on two occasions to save up my tuition money and really experienced what it's like to be completely by myself on my own. And I entered basically a downward spiral, uh, whereby my senior year, I was thriving academically, but I was personally um, in crisis. And it, uh, a professor of mine actually helped me break that cycle. And he taught me coping skills. He taught me how to use them. And I was able to enter into the adult part of my life free from drug use. But it really showed me how fast my life could go from fine to not fine and that I could interrupt that cycle. So for the next part of my life, I I was drinking socially, um, going to weddings, girls' weekends, um, binge drinking for sure on those occasions. Uh, I had a lot of fun, but I still hung on to that end of the night where everyone else's night would be done and I would stay up and I would relax with drinking. I, I loved that feeling of going numb and having that time all to myself. And it, it really felt like a reward for me. And, I, and Amanda, uh, I was wondering when we heard from the other women, uh, there were different turning points for them and different uh, programs that helped them. And so what was your turning point? Where did you turn for help? My turning point was really when I had my children were probably seven and nine. And as as the years had gone on, I I noticed that, you know, that isolation had really taken hold and, and I was numbing with alcohol and it was it was fine for a long time but when i think my kids were about that age i realized that my habits were starting to change i was starting to hide my drinking from my husband i was starting to um i was starting to change some of the habits and and it really scared me the volume was increasing and i just looked myself in the eye one day and i knew that I was not ready, that if something happened to my husband or something happened to my kids or something happened in the world that was serious, that I was going to turn to alcohol to cope with it. And I talked to my husband and I told him what was going on. You know, I, I didn't drink when I was pregnant with our children and I had tried stopping for about a year on different occasions, but I could never get past a year. I just my body just craved the alcohol. Um, it wasn't like that with drugs, but it was like that with alcohol. And he just dropped everything that he was doing and, and rearranged everything we found. Um, I didn't feel like I needed to go into detox or to go to an outpatient facility, but there was a place called Krapalu Center for Yoga and Health in the Berkshires. And they had an addiction recovery workshop that was going on and we told our kids that I was going on a trip and I went. And so describe that uh, for us. What was it about that experience that helped you get uh, the drinking under control or for you to be sober now for seven and a half years? 
Well, I think it, it first and foremost, it was a place that I had been before. Um, I had gone to Kripalu for retreats on, on a couple of occasions. So it was a place I was really comfortable. I felt at ease there. I knew what to expect. And I trusted the programming that went on in that community. So to enter into a five-day intensive recovery conference, I felt like I could trust whatever they were going to tell me, and I could just do whatever they suggested. And it really normalized the process of recovery. I didn't understand what recovery was. You know, I had tried to stop drinking before, but I had never tried to recover. And recovery is a very active daily process. And it really, I heard my story and other people's stories. It normalized uh, meetings in the 12-step program of recovery for people who wanted to try that. I had tried that once before on my own, and I found it very overwhelming. I didn't know what to expect, but in this setting, I could experience that and, and have that normalized for me before I came home and tried to utilize some of that programming. When we talk about alcohol use uh, among women, is this a hidden problem? And what do, what do you think about that personally? And what do you hear from women that are also in your network uh, that are also in recovery? Well, what I hear, yes, it is a very hidden problem, especially for women. You know, there's this idea that people in recovery are the weakest among us. And that has not been my experience. You know, people in recovery are the strongest among us because they're dedicating themselves to their health. And it is a very hard process and, and it's an incredibly rewarding one. But women go through so many different stages, you know, when you, especially for women, when they have children, you go through an incredible identity shift. You know, our society does not value the, the raising of children, whether it's in a, a childcare setting or in a home setting. And that is a very unshakable uh, process for a lot of women. And we are in a process where, you know, most of us are trying to do more than we really can manage. Um, and stress, we just succumb to it. Um, that and every time you turn around, you know, if someone is telling you that everything will be fine if you just have a drink at the end of the day, which is what most people are doing when their kids go to bed, who experience the downward spiral that I did, you know, that's not an uncommon story. You know, there's been a lot of attention on um, prescription drug use over the years and um, how to help people. Um, but when we think about um, alcohol use disorder, uh, people struggling with consuming uh, excessive uh, amounts of alcohol. I mean, what supports are there uh, for people in the community? Because sometimes there are financial barriers. Uh, maybe someone, um, you know, their insurance only will pay for a certain amount of days. And so they're in this cycle of trying to get help, uh, but needing more than just a 10 or 20 day program. Well, I guess my my recovery didn't necessarily rely on that. I know a lot of people who have found uh, tremendous support through getting medication when at times when they needed it, and um, they determined when those times were. My recovery has been grounded more in putting support systems in place for myself. I definitely 
um, see, you know, I, I love my therapist. Um, I found that the biggest help is to see her when things are going well. So I do that on a regular basis. Um, I, I exercise six days a week, you know, I'm a New Englander. So I have a, a sport I love for every season and that keeps me active, keeps me moving. I worked with a naturopath over the year years to try to dial down on my nutrition and really stabilized and, and rebuilt my body from the inside out. Uh, that I had a lot of struggles with my with nutrients um, that were deficient, and I didn't realize how that was affecting my mood. So there's a lot of things that you can do to support yourself in recovery that are just those daily first things first habits, eat, sleep, exercise, therapy. Um, some of the things that we all try to do, but in recovery, you do them with a lot of intention. And I found the first two years of my recovery, uh, I did utilize uh, a 12-step program. I wasn't in the program the way that others may define that, but I certainly found that to be an incredible, incredible support, especially with other women in a gender-based way, as Kathleen mentioned. Well, we're glad to hear that you're doing well today, Amanda, and that you're helping uh, so many others uh, through your work. Uh, Amanda Aronson, again, is a West Hartford resident. She's owner of Aronson Consulting. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for having me. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to continue talking after the break, and we'll be hearing from an addiction medicine physician. You can join us, too. Are you or someone you love in recovery? What programs helped you? What supports do you think are still needed? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been talking with Connecticut women in recovery from excessive alcohol use, uh, this problem rising among women even before the pandemic. Joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Jeanette Tetro, a Yale medicine physician and professor, also program director of the Addiction Medicine Fellowship at Yale School of Medicine. Jeanette, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And thank you to Beverly, Kathleen, and Amanda for sharing their stories and shedding light on this important topic. I wanted to start with the National Institutes for Health, uh, that recent study showing that alcohol consumption has really skyrocketed, especially among women. What have you noticed among your women patients and, and some of the factors here? Yeah, um, so I, I certainly, as as you've noted, this has been uh, recognized before the pandemic hit, but certainly um, reached increasing proportions uh, during the first wave of the pandemic and ongoing where, um, you know, using alcohol to cope from social isolation, increased demands, um, both in the home and, and working from home and schooling from home have really um, caused increases uh, among women who drink. Um, and many women experiencing, um, you know, complications related to excessive alcohol use, uh, including the development of alcohol use disorder. Tell us about uh, the health uh, conditions that women um, who are drinking excessively, uh, what they are experiencing that's very different from men. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's been highlighted here in, in um, some of the stories that that uh, we've heard this morning. Um, but certainly there's there's significant ties between underlying uh, mental health conditions and alcohol use and, and other substance use. Um, and so untreated, um, these two situations really exacerbate each other. And, and we see this uh, often in women. In terms of complications, um, Outside of mental health conditions, there certainly are medical conditions. Kathleen talked about presenting to the emergency department with pancreatitis um, and alcoholic hepatitis, other um, uh, gastroenterology-related complications uh, resulting from excessive alcohol use. And, and we see this happen more often in women for, for multiple reasons. One is um, women have um, different levels of uh, volumes of distribution, body water, but also um, there are um, differences in the metabolism uh, between men and women of alcohol. So women are at higher risk of experiencing complications related to alcohol than men. So we've been focusing on, on the numbers uh, to, pay, to uh, frame this show, this idea that um, um, many more women are drinking excessively. But when we say that, what are we talking about? I mean, how many drinks a day or a week uh, is seen as excessive that can lead to these conditions, Dr. Tetro? Sure. You know, so, so we define binge drinking in women as four or more drinks on occasion um, or five or more drinks on occasion in men. Um, and heavier excessive drinking is really defined as eight or more drinks per week in women and 15 more drink, 15 or more drinks uh, a week in men. Um, so these, these um, binge drinking and heavy drinking definitions really um, should, should give us pause to think about our uh, alcohol patterns um, and, um, you know, look at how alcohol may be affecting our lives and, you know, our relationships, our work life, et cetera. Can we talk about access to care? This was something I brought up also with Amanda and we heard from the other women, you know, different uh, programs, different treatments uh, help them. But in terms of, you know, accessing care and, you know, how much it can cost uh, for someone who goes into a residential treatment center uh, for um, excessive alcohol use, there is an out-of-pocket expense. And so as a society, you know, how do we um, confront that problem as well? People who want to get better, but, you know, there are financial barriers for them. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that question. And, you know, just based on, on the stories that we've heard today, there's really no one size fits all treatment. Um, and so um, being mindful of that, many, many of the women on the show this morning talked about having support systems in place and, um, you know, exploring different options. And, you know, we, we recognize that sometimes people um, have multiple treatment episodes before um, they are able to achieve their goals. Um, I, I think an underutilized resource is, is your primary care provider. Um, and, you know, speaking with them about what's going on, what you are recognizing. Uh, many folks, you know, have, have recognized they are starting to lose control over their alcohol use. And if, if that's occurring, um, you know, you should be able to speak with your provider without the shame and stigma that has been discussed on this show um, and uh, work to really establish some goals. And then um, your provider should, should help you then find the right treatment. 
Um, in our, you know, where I work in the Yale program in addiction medicine, you know, we, we have a motto, there should be no wrong door to treatment uh, for any patient accessing the healthcare system. You're hearing Dr. Jeanette Tetro here on Where We Live. She's a Yale Medicine physician, um, professor, program director of the Addiction Medicine Fellowship at Yale School of Medicine. As we talk about excessive alcohol use among women, uh, the numbers are rising. Uh, Dr. Tetro, uh, wondering when we think about the health conditions that uh, women have unique to men uh, when they are consuming uh, large amounts of, of alcohol, that's leading to increased numbers of hospitalizations? And, and what have you seen in the, in the pandemic? Yeah, most certainly. I mean, we are certainly seeing our hospital beds fill up, not just because of COVID, right? Um, people are are coming in with complications related to alcohol use um, at, at higher rates. There's, um, as I mentioned, concerns um, about, um, you know, it, increased um, drinking, but also development of alcohol use disorder, where it's really um, loss of control, significant consequences, and uh, physiologic phenomenon related to alcohol. And we're certainly seeing that presenting in the, in the hospital settings. Um, also, other substance use has also increased during this time. So when we hear alcohol use disorder, is that the same as the term alcoholism? Can you define that for us? Yeah, so alcohol use disorder is really um, a, a set of criteria that we look at um, and um, for, for folks who've, you know, recognize that alcohol may be impacting their life, um, we use criteria to define whether someone has an alcohol use disorder and it falls into three general domains. If they're experiencing physiologic consequences, meaning, you know, um, they, they experience withdrawal symptoms, or notice they need to drink more alcohol to get the desired effect. Uh, if they notice um, they're losing control over their alcohol use. So while it may have been controlled at one point, now they really can't control it. Um, and then um, the other general domain is uh, continued alcohol use despite consequences, despite harm. Um, and so when we sort of look at these criteria, um, the, the more um, of these 11 criteria that an individual is experiencing, um, the more severe we consider their alcohol use disorder. And you mentioned earlier that the first stop in, in seeking out help it can be the, 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 the chat with the primary care physician. So when you look at this research that shows that alcohol use um, has been growing even before the pandemic, how does that messaging change at the doctor's office, uh, the, the communication that the doctor needs to have with the patient, especially when we know, you know people haven't been staying uh, routine with their checkups in this pandemic? How do you reach your patient? with these, these very important messages? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, Kath Kathleen brought up early on um, in the show uh, an approach called screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment. And um, so I think what, what that does is normalize um, providers asking patients about substance use, about alcohol and other substance use, um, utilizing techniques uh, for uh, folks who may be ambivalent about change to motivate them to um, 
either change their drinking behaviors or seek treatment. Um, and uh, really making sure that our providers understand the evidence base um, uh, related to treatment of alcohol use disorder uh, and how this may differ among men and women um, and knowing what the referral sources are. So I think those are the, the main things. And, and a lot of that starts with education and community understanding. Mm. Again, we're talking to, to Dr. Jeanette Tetro here on Where We Live. Uh, she's a physician and professor and program director of the Addiction Medicine Fellowship at Yale School of Medicine. If you have a, a comment or a question uh, as we talk about a recovery, the number 888-720-9677. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Earlier in the show, I asked the women uh, who shared their stories with us about the mixed messages that our society puts out there. Even when we, we hear, you know, um, red wine, drinking red wine helps uh, with uh, heart health or, oh, if you're stressed out, just have a drink, you'll feel better. And so how do we confront all those messages, uh, Dr. Tetro? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there, there are certain, um, you know, there are certain times in one's life that alcohol should not be consumed at all, right? Um, so pregnant women, um, uh, before, um, uh, you know, uh, young adulthood, um, before age 21. Um, these are times when we really should be really careful with our messaging um, and, uh, you know, work with folks who may still be engaging under those circumstances. Um, outside of that, you know, there's really no healthy reason to drink alcohol. It's more, um, you know, reducing harm. And again, this is a topic that Kathleen brought up earlier that I firmly believe in, which is we should focus on any particular harms that a patient is experiencing related to their substance use and work with them to achieve the goals that they're looking for. Um, so currently the recommendations are to either engage in no alcohol uh, consumption or for women, um, less than one drink per day. When we think about uh, treatment uh, and the different paths that people can take, I mean, do you have guidelines for women patients on, on which path to take that is best for them? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, this really, treatment should be individualized. Um, there is no one size fits all. Um, and so, uh, you know, again, this is where the primary care provider can be very impactful because they, they know the patient's history um, kind of above and beyond the, the pre presentation with alcohol use. Um, so for, for women who have uh, underlying mood and anxiety disorder, and that's intertwined with their alcohol use, certainly um, thinking about treatments for alcohol that are also focused on uh, caring for their underlying mental health. We talked a lot about uh, intertwining of alcohol use and trauma and really thinking about trauma-informed care when we approach patients uh, with alcohol use. Um, I think one of the things we haven't talked a lot about on this show is the impact of medications. And there are medications that can really help with cravings. Um, and so this may be uh, an important component of care for some patients um, and has a strong evidence base behind it. Mm. And we only have a couple of minutes left, but can you name some of the medications uh, that you subscribe for your patients that can help them? 
Sure. Um, naltrexone uh, is um, probably the, mo the most uh, widely studied and has the best evidence base behind it, can reduce cravings from alcohol that comes in an oral and an injectable form. Um, there are other medications. One is called a camprosate. Um, and um, there's also uh, disulfiram or antabuse, which many people have heard about, um, which is much more of a deterrent, doesn't really address cravings. Well, again, we really appreciate your time here on the show. Dr. Jeanette Tetro, a physician and professor, also program director of the Addiction Medicine Fellowship at Yale School of Medicine. You know, I thought it was really powerful to hear from these women who shared their stories. And when we think about how to address stigma, Dr. Tetro, I'm wondering if you could just end on the importance of, of hearing people and, and not judging them, because we all have different paths our lives take. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I firmly believe stigma is one of the biggest threats to health overall. Um, and so, um, you know, I think uh, providers certainly need to leave their stigma at the door when they're coming into medical settings. Uh, additionally, I think there's a, a great deal of importance in the education system, the medical education system and the public education system about uh, substance use in general uh, and alcohol use, um, normalizing, allowing folks to recognize and, and barely referred to this as a lifelong disease um, and, and recognizing that um, there is help out there. There are people who can help you um, and support is important. Uh, Healthcare providers are important, um, and um, you know, leaving that stigma and shame behind uh, from the part of the provider is of the utmost importance to make a change for individuals. We appreciate your time today. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpith Anshul. Today's show is produced by Sujata Srinivasan. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow when we to talk about movements to take back prim trimmed lawns to help native plants and pollinators. Also to provide stopovers for migrating birds on the next where we live, we dig into the trends of delawning and rewilding. Ecologist and entomologist Doug Tallamy joins us. We hope you as you do as well. <laughs>